Welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. My name is Alan Bradford, coming to you from Knoxville, Tennessee. And as always with me is Terry Ishi in Austin, Texas. How's it going, Terry? Pretty good. Well, today we're going to continue our discussion um, that we've been thinking about, and it's this idea of the questions that the church should be asking. And Terry and I were thinking about this, you know, as we're coming out of COVID or as we're entering this, I don't know, the fourth wave of COVID now with the Delta variant, the church is asking a lot of questions. And so we've been asking people, hey, what are the what are the questions the church should be asking right now? And we've been asking this to different people. And today we're fortunate enough to have with us Brad Briscoe. Uh, Brad, it's good to have you, man. Hey, great to be with you. Both you guys i always enjoy conversations with with you too yeah it's been it's been a minute i think the last time we were together was actually in florida at expo back in march right before everything shut down yeah it was like that month wasn't it yeah <laughs> it was yeah, yeah like it was everything was starting to hit i think in orlando and then we got the heck out and Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Well, let me let me introduce you to Brad. Brad um, is on the well. First off, he's on the Forge America board, so that makes him one of our bosses. He's one of the muckety mucks that makes things happen. So we have to be really nice to him on this podcast. Uh, but Brad is also the director of bivocational church planning for the North America Mission Board. Um, he's an author. He's written a couple of different books: The Missional Quest, Next Door as It Is in Heaven, and Missional Essentials. Um, he blogs regularly at the missionalchurchnetwork.com. Definitely high would say you need to go there and check that out. Uh, but one of the reasons I'm really excited to have Brad on here is because Brad holds a doctorate in the area of missional ecclesiology. And I didn't even know that existed. Maybe I, maybe I just made that up, Alan. Yeah, I think you did, man. It I think sounded, it sounded cool. So, you know. yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of excited about the questions you're going to be asking here. Um, but here's another thing too, is Brad's got a couple free resources out there that you could get at his website. Again, missionalchurchnetwork.com. Um, one is an ebook called rethink. And the subtitle is nine paradigm shifts for activating the church, which you had put out, I don't know, maybe a, a year, a couple years before the pandemic hit, I think. Right. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think it came out about two years ago. Yeah. Two years, yeah. And it's it's brilliant. I think it's really worth checking out. Um, and then also co-vocational church planning. And I know in my conversations with church planners around the, the, the area and around the country, that topic is huge. Um, and I think that's going to be an even greater topic to get into. So check both of those out there. Uh, highly recommend that. But Brad, again, it's good to have you here. And so I'm just going to throw it to you, man. When you think about this, as we're coming out of COVID... The, the questions you feel like church leaders, the church should be asking right now, well, what comes to your mind? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that's a, a, a interesting and very helpful just question to ask is what, what, how do we need to be thinking differently? And we most definitely need to be thinking differently. And I think, you know, one question that might encompass uh, several other kind of smaller questions would just be something around how we're going to determine success. You know, pre-COVID, really, I'd say the last probably four decades of kind of in the midst of church growth movement, church growth mentality, uh, all of our, the way we measured success was really tied into the Sunday gathering. You know, I mean, jokingly, people say buildings, budgets, and butts. So in other words, it was how many people showed up, how much money did they give, and like, what was our seating capacity or how many acres did the church own? You know, it was like, had something to do with our facilities or our property. And that's just not, that just doesn't fit anymore. I mean, it, you know, uh, the research is just showing lots of people aren't coming back. A lot of people have lost interest. It's just, you know, even pre-COVID, we knew that the attractional model, we just lived in a very different context than we did, uh, you know, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. So I think that might be, that might be a good kind of overarching umbrella question to ask is how will we determine success moving forward? 
how do we know the church is uh, doing the things that the church has, has been called to do? So, um, and I, I think there's kind of some different different directions we could go with that question. Yeah, that's great. I, I know that like in our context, we were even struggling with that question pre-COVID, um, you know, being a part of an, uh, a community here in Knoxville where we said, you know, hey, yeah, well, we measure those things, the the butts, the budgets, the, the the building, all of those things. That sounded awful, didn't it? We're measuring the butts. That's, yeah, I shouldn't shouldn't have said that, but let's just move on. We're measuring the amount of people that are there. Although, you know, you've got all that stuff, but it wasn't the driving thing. But we always said, well, what, what is the, the metric for success? And that was one of the things that we really struggled with. And, and a lot of other churches seem to be really struggling with that idea of, hey, what is the metric for success? How do we know when we're doing what, what God is calling us to do? And uh, it seemed to be up for grabs, but definitely during COVID, man, this time right now, again, you're right. You can see, um, you know, is it is it online engagement? Is it is it, you know, how many people can I get on the live stream? Is it all these different things? I don't think that's the, really the right the right way to look at it. Yeah. And I tell you, I think initially uh, something that we need to kind of make a differentiation and, and think a little bit about is even those the, the language we've just used. I mean, um, you know, a lot of times we'll use the language of counting and measuring interchangeably, like, the, the, you know, that mean, we mean the same thing. And actually, I think it's helpful to make a distinction there that there's actually a difference between counting something and measuring something. So one way to do that is to say counting is really quantitative. Uh, it's about uh, numbers and measuring is qualitative. It's really about change. So I, and I'm not saying one's better than the other, but historically, the church has only counted. And I think one of the reasons we count is counting is much easier than measuring. Yeah. So again, go back to buildings, budgets, and butts. Those are all counting. I mean, the, because it's easy. I mean, it's fairly easy to count how many people showed up to a program or an event or a Sunday morning worship service. So those are the things that we've, we've counted. But so I'm not opposed to counting and maybe, maybe there's a place where it still makes sense to count how many people show up. I mean, you'd have to convince me of that. I'm not sure, that, <laughs> but you know, I want to try to be gracious and say, Hey, maybe it means you know, I'm not saying you stop doing those things, but at the very least we have to start counting and measuring other things. So for example, I think that the number one thing that we need to count is what, you know, all of us would call missionary behaviors or activities. I mean, if we really think the church needs to be activating all the people of God to engage in mission, then we need to start counting missionary behaviors. Like, you know, it, and man, the sky's the limit on this. We could count how many people we have in our home every week that's not a part of the church. We could count how many meals we share with non-believers. Um, we could count how many hours people in the church are mentoring students at the elementary school down the street. I mean, really, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of beautiful things we could count. And when we do that in the church, we're telling people in the church, that's what matters. Yeah. Because if we only count how many people show up in a roundabout way, we're telling them, hey, what matters is if you bring someone with you on Sunday. And, and we, again, we just don't live there anymore. So we need, we need to value those missionary behaviors and activities that we're trying to help, you know, push people into more missionary engagement outside the walls of the church. And then just real quick, and we can come back to this, but then for me, measuring is about measuring change. And I'll often say, we can think about this in a couple different ways. We can think about measuring change inside the church, but measuring change outside the church. So inside the church, really, it's just discipleship, right? I mean, we want to measure maturity in, in the people that are a part of our church. Now, 
that's not easy, but, but it's not impossible. I mean, there's certain ways that, you know, we can, we can measure change on how, how people are doing and, you know, becoming more and more like Jesus. But I think for this conversation, we need to think about outside the walls of the church. Let's begin to measure the influence or the impact the local church is having on their community. So, you know, one possible way to do that is to identify what are some of the key issues in your community that you would like to see change and become better. I mean, it could have to do with education or crime, I mean, all sorts of things, and get a baseline, kind of find out, all right, right now, our city or our community, here's where the numbers are as it relates to poverty or unemployment or whatever it might be, and then say, what would we like this to be a year from now or two years from now? And then, and then figure out, how, what are we going to do to actually try to bring about change in our community? What sorts of things does the church need to be involved in? So it's real simple, but I just think, I do think a, a starting point is to, to think a little differently about counting versus measuring. And then let's try to do both. I, I got a brilliant example of that is in the, um, the faith community that I was a part of. Um, supposedly, there's a statistic out there that says um, the state will measure how many uh, prison beds they need based on fourth grade literacy levels. So an X, there's some sort of equation. They could plug it in and say, here's the fourth grade literacy level. And in X amount of years, we're going to need this many prison beds in the prisons. Well, we have a lady in our in the, in the community who just said, you know what? I, I She loves reading um, and she just loves getting kids to read. And beyond the gimmicky, like, hey, you're in many points, but literally just love reading, love books. And so she picked a school and then picked a grade and there were five classrooms at that grade. She said, I'm going to pick second grade. And every Friday she got a team of people to come in and read to the kids. So worked it out with the school and just read to the kids. So for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, all these people, every class had people read. And then two to three times a year, she had a major book giveaway where the kids would come in, they'd come into this, this auditorium and every kid could pick three books. And you would have thought it was Christmas. Like the kids were like, I, I could take these home. But it was really, and she called the program for the love of reading. Um, and But the trick there is like, she's trying to make a dent in that statistic saying, hey, if that's it. But that's not an easy measure. You have to say, well, let's come back in, oh, 20 years. <laughs> you know, let's come back in however long and see what sort of impact this has made. You know, she started with second grade. I think eventually she ended up going into fourth grade because the program just grew. And then COVID happened and it'll be interesting to see what happens after that. But I love that, that saying, hey, let's take some long-term measures, like not the easy stuff. Let's take some long-term measures and kind of go from there. Yeah. And gosh, Alan, I would say, yeah, the law, I mean, really long-term when you're talking about prison beds, right? But there's other things we can measure. I mean, if we really believe that correlation and, and I've heard that before, man, super powerful, right? But we could actually, but we could certainly measure the rates of those children, right? I mean, like a year out, let's measure how many of those fourth graders can actually read. So, you know, so we don't have to go all the way out to you know, 20 years and see how many are in prison, but, but there's things we can measure. I mean, if we really believe that is a true correlation and connection, then what are the things we can measure to say, no, we're actually making a difference in the literacy rates of these children. And man, we can certainly do that, right? And then just think, I mean, if any local congregation, if they're really tapped into you know, the culture and the vibe of their neighborhood and their community, they're going to discover all sorts of things like that. I mean, just talk with business leaders and talk with community leaders and school teachers and the mayor, and they're going to tell you, man, here's a, here's an issue in our city. And then start thinking, okay, well, what could the church do about that? And then let's, let's get a marker and let's, and then let's try to revisit these numbers a year from now, 18 months from now, two years from now, 
I mean, it's amazing. So that's the measuring piece. But then like, you know, again, there's lots of beautiful things uh, that we can count as well. So yeah, I just think coming out of COVID, um, yeah, we, we, we've got to do this. We've got to think completely different about how are we going to measure success? How are we going to know, you know, we're like, we're hitting a home run. Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating, uh, and it's funny, Alan, that you, you brought up the, the example of uh, reading uh, in the elementary uh, grade level here, here in Austin, we had a, a citywide, uh, we've had several citywide campaigns. Uh, Christ Together was kind of formed here in Austin and we've done several campaigns and, um, there was one where we began to slowly have these conversations of, of more qualitative measuring and, and that sort of thing. And so we, we actually tapped into that, that study. It's like, Hey, we need, what, what does it look like if all the churches in Austin were to begin to kind of step up and measure this idea? And so, um, and then COVID hit. And one of the things that, that I'm, I'm fascinated with is when crisis hits, we often revert back to the basic ideas that we have. It's like all the paradigms that we maybe have engaged in, maybe even began the, the turn in, they almost all seem just to disappear. And we go back to like some caveman way of thinking about leadership. It reminds me of like a duck that has like all its little ducklings following it. And like a hawk swoops out of the sky and is messing with this, this family of ducks. And they make it to the clearing. And the only thing the mother's worried about is counting how many heads are left. <laughs> and like, that's, that's what I'm seeing pastors do. It's like, they've been the last year, they've just been attacked by all these different hawks. And they're just like panting, like counting heads. How many's left? How many, how many of them do I have left? And like all of these other things have just kind of fallen out of the window. It's almost like they've gone into some kind of you know, survival mode. And, and I know for some churches, that's exactly what they've done. They're, they're barely hanging on. And so I'm kind of curious when you, when you think through the, that sort of environment, you know, there might be someone listening right now who's like, man, I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to make sure that we're open in, in three months, six months. How do we, how do we begin to move from this counting to measuring i mean what, what are your thoughts on that brad i think it's i say all the time i don't think it's complicated but it's multifaceted and you guys know this that this whole idea about trying to get the church to engage in mission outside the walls of the church is multifaceted we have to come at it from several different directions i mean one of the directions is scorecards we've got to com have a completely different way of counting and measuring success but another is we have to almost have a complete rethinking of the nature of the church and you know this is a conversation we've all had multiple times but we we have to complete we have to start by recapturing the missionary nature of the church and just like it has to start there we have to rethink church the church isn't a place where certain things happen the church isn't a vendor of religious goods and services but we're actually a missionary entity but then another avenue is we have to recognize the drastic changes that have taken place in our culture because there's still a lot of people in our church that, yeah, like you said, Terry, they've just gone to survival mode thinking, you know, let's just hang on and then we're going to get back to the way it was. Yeah. No, we're not going to get back to the way it was, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was so, it was changing so rapidly pre-COVID. COVID just accelerated every change that we could identify. It's just accelerated, you know, 10, 50 fold perhaps. So I just think there's lots of different directions we have to come at. But even though there are churches, like you said, Terry, that have like reverted back and they've kind of gone in survival mode. Thank goodness there are also leaders that we've all talked to that realize, no, it something's radically 
and, and systematically has changed and we've got to move in a different direction. But it's like, this has got to be a complete reset. And that I'm, I'm excited about and encouraged by, you know, so um, in some cases, there's still like some incremental shifts, but there's others. I talk to leaders that know, they just know this is a brand new day. And part of the kind of, man, again, there's so many different aspects of this, but I think one that I think is really helpful is the number of churches that are recognizing one of the things COVID has done is to reveal to them how centralized their church was, that everything was connected to the Sunday morning worship service. Yeah. I mean, I've had multiple conversations with leaders that have said, look, I knew our Sunday gathering was a big deal. I had no idea. It's like everything, every program, every activity, children's, youth, finances, everything was tied into the Sunday gathering. So I, I have found it to be, because again, I think this is just a step, like you said, Terry, is how do we even get there? I think one of the steps is to leader for to help leaders figure out how can I become a little less centralized and a little more decentralized. So maybe it's you don't blow everything up and you know because that doesn't normally work well, right? But just incrementally, how can you become a little less focused on this? Become be Sunday a little less Sunday centric and a little more decentralized. And and I think part of the way of doing that is helping our the people in our congregations, helping them discover their passion for mission. So I, I would say, I think the church needs to either create or, dis, or use some sort of discovery process to help more and more people in the church recognize how they're wired in passion for mission, and then begin to equip them to engage in that mission outside the walls of the church. I tell leaders all the time, look, the first person that you help do that, the first person that says, well, now I've, I've realized God's called me and wired me and gifted me to engage this mission in the city. The moment you equip that person to engage in that mission, you've instantly become just a little less centralized and a little more decentralized. <laughs> so, so I think part of, you know, again, it's just multifaceted, but I think one of the starting points is we've got to have a conversation about what is the church. And then we have to figure out if we really believe in the priesthood of all believers, we have to figure out how are we going to empower and equip people to step outside the walls of the church. And then when we do that, we're in, we're going to start counting things differently because we're going to start counting and measuring things that our people are engaged in outside the walls of the church. Yeah. One of the, one of the brilliant um, examples of this, I think it was when we interviewed Beth Wolf, Terry, if you remember, um, she said uh, she got a bunch of uh, church leaders together. They were in a room or something like that. And they were talking about, Hey, what do we need to do to, to, to come out of COVID and, and, and what do we need to do to make our churches better? And they had all these crazy ideas about, you know, it all involved the, the church. And then somebody finally said, yeah, but what does your neighborhood need? Like, what does your community need? Oh, well, they need this, 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 and this. Well, why don't you just orient your church around that? Um, and I was like, oh, that, that was brilliant. <laughs> like, I, that's been stuck in my head for so long. But again, it goes back to what you're saying, Brad, is reorienting around mission and making sure that that is the, you know, th that everything is in line with the Missio Day and how, how we're actually going to equip people to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, you just said what, what, what she shared, that wasn't rocket science, right? But, but it's not easy because we've had 50 years of the church being this thing It's like, you know, our programs, our activities for us. So yeah, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's like, what are the steps then that we have to take to really identify those needs in our community and then begin to change the thinking and the behaviors of the people in our church to actually focus and engage in that. And, and you said it, Terry, I, I mean, uh, Alan, you said it is, you know, the bottom line is that 
God's mission has to be the organizing principle. It's like God's, it, we have to start with God's mission and God's mission has to inform and shape everything else we do as a church. And again, not, not easy, but certainly doable. It's just going to take some time for us to get there. Yeah. Brad, have you ever seen any organization that helps churches um, kind of really understand the context of the neighborhood they're in? Because like you said, usually they're their own kingdom. They're their own little little thing, uh, insular to the community. At least that's what I've seen a lot of. There's very few churches. Well, I don't know about very few. Um, it's not often that I see a church that has been so so embedded in the community, but that if the church left, if the whole body of believers are gone, the church that the neighborhood would actually suffer. You know, that doesn't happen a lot. But have you seen any organization or anything, any tools, anything that helps a church really embed in its neighborhood and understand its community context? Well, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I mean, there's a lot of different like contextual, I wish I could give you a really good example right now. I mean, I know of different resources that are out there about trying to better understand your context. I mean, it, you know, you mentioned the Covo book uh, earlier, Alan, there is a chapter in there that I use some, I really, I tweak some resources from, from other sources and, and just try to kind of put it together in one lesson or one chapter. There's a chapter there on contextualization. It's like, what do we mean by contextualization? And then what are, what are practical things we can do to discover what are the economic, spiritual, and physical needs of our community? And really the bottom line to all that, and again, it sounds super simple, <laughs> But it's becoming a great observer and a great listener of the places yeah. that we live, right? I mean, it's crazy. When we, when we talk about Missio Day, what we mean by that is that it's all about God's mission, not ours. Well, if it really is about God's mission, then our strategy ought to be to be a great observer and a great listener. <laughs> it's like, it's that simple. It's not how smart we are. It's not about our techniques. But if, it, if, if we really believe God is actively, actively involved in the lives of the people around us and in our neighborhoods and our communities, then our the first thing we need to do is pay attention and we need to become great listeners. So yeah, one of the things that uh, when I have a church planner come to Austin, um, you know, they'll, Hey, they'll want to, they'll want to meet with me and we sit down and, you know, they're basically, they, they're asking me like, Hey, what are all the tips and tricks to church planting in this city? And the first thing I always tell all of them is you need to go buy a book called Austin weird and you need to read the book. And it's one of those things where so many church planners come in, they're, they're, they're not really even interested in hearing the history of how, mm. how the city, you know, like, what is the culture? Why is the culture the culture today? And how is it shifting and changing? Um, and it, that's one of the things that we do for church planners here is we, we almost just tell them, it's like, hey, go read this, get an idea of what's going on. And, and it's the beginning of the listening. Right. It's the beginning of like, you need to understand how this city works. I, I remember the, when I first come across this book at year, year, years and years ago, I was like, oh, how lucky is Austin that we have like this little history book about our city, you know? And, and then I like begin to discover like, you know, every other city in America is, is just as egotistical as we are. <laughs> Texas just, we just, we just are, we're more proud of our, uh, our level of, uh, of ego about where we live. But like all of these communities, you know, you can go to almost any library and say, hey, what do you have about the history of this town? And they're going to have several resources. I think it's just a, a fantastic way just to begin the process of listening and understanding like what came before you and because what comes before us is really that it, it's the result of what we have now. And that process is, is crucial. 
And one of the things we'll do here at Forge in Knoxville is I have a good buddy who used to be a city planner here in Knoxville. He worked under a couple of different mayors. Um, and he's an African-American gentleman, but he's also a Knoxville historian. Like he just soaks up the Knoxville history. He's researched it. And we'll do, we'll take our, our residents on a Knoxville tour. And I've grown up in Knoxville. I moved here when I was 14, all except for five years of my life I've been in Knoxville. I thought I knew Knoxville. Every time I take this tour with my friend Kevin, I learned something new about Knoxville that I never knew because you're seeing Knoxville through uh, a historian's eyes and you're seeing about how, for example, urban renewal, how it just devastated the African-American community in Knoxville and what it did to this day. Like that was back in the 50s, 60s and how it's still continuing to affect our African-American population in Knoxville to this day. Um, you're seeing it through an African-American's eyes. You know, you're, you're seeing the city in just a completely different way. And I love taking people on this tour and it just it's just people who thought they they knew knoxville they're just like oh they just see it in a completely different way first i love what you said about kevin and and that and then i love what terry uh talked about with the book on austin i mean as you were sharing that terry man the word that just popped in my head was uh curious or curiosity that we really i mean as, uh, if we're a church planter moving in the city we ought to just be like crazy curious right which means we need to learn about the city, but we should be crazy curious with every single person we run into. Yeah. It's like, tell me your story. Tell me your story of this city. Tell me the story of your neighborhood. And again, if it really is about God's mission, yeah, we, we should be asking all kinds of questions just to, to learn uh, not only about our context, but how might God be working in the lives of that, of that person? Yeah. And then, oh, I know the other thing I was just thinking too, Alan, as you were sharing, is that it is about helping the church kind of collectively embed in their community. But then also it's about, because, you know, we've got people in the church that are in every nook and cranny, neighborhood wise, workplace, social spaces. So we need to help them kind of contextualize into their little local nook and cranny. Um, I love it. See if I can remember this, right. I love a, a, a quote, uh, Brian Sanders from the underground church. He says, no strategy will reach every kind of person, except the strategy that mobilizes every kind of person. Yeah. So it's like it does, you know, collectively, we're just not going to reach everybody. But if we equip and empower everybody that's a part of that local congregation to engage their mission fields, then, you know, we're going to be in places that the church collectively would never go. So, yeah, so that might be helpful just as we think about contextualization, think about contextualizing maybe where the church's facility or building is, like what's this neighborhood around where we meet, but then also we have to help individuals contextualize their individual places. Hey, Brad, we were talking about uh, counting and measuring. Can you go back to counting and kind of unpack that a little bit and go a little deeper? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we were, I was just saying, I think we can still count, but what we need to count are missionary behaviors and activities. But to get a little more specific there, uh, I tell you a book that, I, you know, several, uh, I know you guys are familiar with this and probably several that are listening to this podcast are aware of it at least, but it was a book written several years ago by Reggie McNeil that's called Missional Renaissance. And I think the subtitle was something like uh, changing the scorecard for the church. So he talks about developing new scorecards around some other like resource categories. So let me tell you what these other categories are and then just give you a couple examples from each of them. He said that we ought to, we ought to count different things around prayer, around people, around our time, around our finances, and then around our facilities or our buildings. So let me just give you a couple examples, because this is just super, super practical, but very helpful. And again, remember, the book is called Missional Renaissance. So like around prayer, uh, 
Reggie would ask, like, we need to count the number of people prayed during the week by church members. So like actually pray, you know, like, or, or here's a, maybe here's a better one. Uh, count the number of prayer meetings connect, uh, conducted off the church property. So not like, hey, Wednesday night prayer meeting in the building, but like how many prayer quote unquote meetings have we had like out in the community? Or how about this? Count the number of community leaders actually adopted and pray for, prayed for every week by church members. So just be thinking, how could you count kind of our prayer activity, but not inside the walls of the church, but outside the walls of the church? Or like people, what he means by this is like, um, let's say the number of people sent into apartment complexes or retirement centers, or maybe mobile home parks or something like that, or number of people uh, serving in other people in venues outside the walls of the church, or the number of people serving as mentors, you know, with kids in the, you know, we mentioned this earlier, kind of in the, you know, the elementary school that's down the street. Uh, For me, time is really a big one. Um, He would say things like, what if we counted the amount of time spent debriefing people that were actually engaged in community service? So you, you're empowering people to engage in community service, but let's count how much time is the church actually spending with them debriefing what they're learning about their community or what are they, they learning about the people that they're engaged with? Um, what about the number of hours spent each week building relationships and social spaces out in the community, like at the coffee shop or a local pub or the, you know, the barbershop or beauty parlor or whatever it might be. So just lots of different things. You know, finances is a big one. Uh, you know, we usually just count how much money we, you know, people give to the church, but what if we started counting how much money was actually given away towards mission? Uh, what if we, what if we tried to move our percentage of mission budget, like uh, every year we tried to move it at a a percent or two. So instead of us, I mean, I know churches that have started where they gave away 10% of their income, but their goal, they eventually, they want to get to 50%. They want to get to where 50% of the tithes and offerings are actually giving away to mission and ministry outside the walls of the church. And then facilities, this is a really easy one, is like the number of community organizations using the church facility. I mean, what about like, you know, AA or other churches or Boy Scouts or Big Brothers or whatever it might be? What if we started started counting the number of hours or the number of community organizations that are actually using our facilities? Um, So just, again, when you think about those different categories, just think, what are some different things that we can count that would just give us a little different perspective on on success? Um, and, And really think about connecting those things that we're counting somehow to God's redemptive mission outside the walls of the church. Yeah, I know you'd written earlier on in uh, kind of COVID uh, as we were kind of dealing with some of that stuff. You know, I, I love everything that you just laid out right there. I think that's brilliant. But again, we're we're still wrestling with this coming out of COVID and how do how do like how do we even begin to think on doing some of those things and measuring those things and counting those things. And so I know you've you've written some some uh, summaries on how to move forward. Uh, I, I'd love if you could just share that with us here. Well, you know, now it's been several months, of course, but when we first moved into COVID, it just seemed like it was just having really dozens and dozens of conversations with church leaders that were just struggling, you know, just what do we do? How are things changed? Well, how do I need to be thinking differently? And I remember at some point after having multiple conversations, just beginning to try to like summarize what were those common themes that, that was having uh, throughout all these multiple conversations. And 
it's funny. I, I kind of did this for, for my own sake to kind of like boil all of these thoughts down in my own head. But I kind of came up with four words that seem to really summarize uh, the vast majority of those conversations. So let me just tell you what the words are. And it, so the first one, this is super simple, but the first one is just the word simplify. That I just, it just seemed like th that part of it was because um, the finances that were coming into a lot of local churches took a drop. And I think it's going to continue to take a hit because of people, you know, unemployment and all of that, that I just think the church in North America, we're going to have to simplify what we think is essential or non-essential. I mean, the reality is I think a lot of the church programs that we've provided, you might call them value add kind of for our members. But I think one of the ways we can do that, and we talked about this earlier, is I think we need to identify what is the organizing principle for our church. And I, you know, all three of us would say the organizing principle ought to be mission. And I would say then we ought to actually evaluate every program and activity of the church. And, and can we co connect it to God's redemptive mission? Can we connect it to God's redemptive purposes? And if we can't, then maybe it's not essential and it, and it actually needs to go. So we just need to simplify. We need to really get laser focus on what the, the church has been called to do and let some things go. And I think coming out of COVID, it, it almost gives us the excuse to do that. If, if there were some things we wanted to kill, this is the time to kill it, right? <laughs> so the first word was simplify. The second word was decentralize. And, and all I mean by that is, you know, we said this earlier, that COVID, one of the things that revealed to lots of churches was just how centralized their ecclesiology is, meaning everything was connected to Sunday morning. So I'm not saying you do away with your Sunday morning. I mean, we are a gathering, worshiping community, but I do think we have to become a little less centralized and a little more decentralized. And the way we do that is we have to equip and empower and activate people to engage in mission outside the walls of the church. And part of that will mean we're going to start smaller expressions of church out in the community. So that's one thing I've seen coming out of COVID is I've seen the start of new networks of decentralized kind of smaller expressions of church. And then I've seen existing churches that are starting to make shifts to where they're trying to start smaller expressions of church outside the walls of the church while they're still doing kind of the gathered thing. So I, the first word was simplify. The second word was decentralized or decentralization. The third word was repurpose. Now, this isn't going to be true for every church, but I think a lot of churches that own property or own facilities, they're going to need to and want to repurpose their buildings for the sake of mission. So in ca some cases, if they're actually starting smaller expressions of, of churches out in their community, they might want to repurpose their building in such a way to resource all of those micro churches or missional communities. But in some cases, I think they're going to need to repurpose their building for the sake of finances. So a book I'd recommend here, uh, there's a, a book written by uh, Mark DeMoz that came out several months ago called The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. And what Mark, the argument Mark makes in that book is that the church isn't going to be able to do all the mission and ministry they want to with tithes and offerings and that it's legit and it's okay to have other income streams. Well, if a church owns a building and property, there are some other things you can do with your property to actually create another income stream. So I think we can repurpose our buildings for finances, but we can also repurpose our buildings for mission. And then the last was just the word bivocational, or sometimes we use the word co-vocational just to say, that more and more leaders are going to, out of necessity, have to become bivocational rather than being fully funded just because there's been a decrease in the giving. And the thing I want to be involved in that, in that conversation is because I don't want those leaders to feel like that's a step back or a step down. I want them to actually recognize there are enormous 
missiological benefits and there are enormous financial benefits of being bivocational. So I actually want to see more and more leaders choose to be bivocational rather than it being out of necessity. So those are just four words I think kind of summarizes, I think, where a lot of church leaders are or where they were in the midst of COVID and then conversations that they want to have kind of coming out of COVID now. And it'll be interesting to see the conversations. Again, if you redid this, if you had these conversations again, if those are the same four words that people are coming back to, or is it, you know, hey, I'm just counting heads again. Um, but I, it's a lot of the conversations that I've had, uh, all, all, all the stuff that you've said for the most part, yeah, I would totally agree with. And I probably recommended Mark DeMaz's book to so many pastors, to so many leaders. Uh, yet just yesterday, I had a conversation with a church uh, planter, and he ended up running across a real estate agent agent that he knew. And so I started talking to the real estate agent and we just, just kind of hanging out and talking out. And, and he started talking about how this vision he had as a real estate agent, but he had a passion for the church. And he's like, well, look, what if I did this? And he had all these brilliant plans for how to help fund ministry through a real estate agency, like through a real estate business. And I'm, I'm blown away because as a you know pastor, I'm like, well, I would never would have thought of that in a million years, you know, but there are some really genius people out there going, I don't, don't I don't want to just support keeping the lights on in a building, but I want to support ministry. Um, and how do we actually um, equip and empower? And again, if the, if the Missio Day, if we're activating everybody, everybody gets a chance to play. It's not just the, it's not just your Navy SEALs, your, your special ninjas. It's not just the pastors. It's everybody gets to play and everybody has a, a stake in the mission that it, the church is trying to accomplish that, or that that we're getting to uh, be a part of. Well, Brad, thanks, uh, man. Thanks again for uh, your time and all of this. This is super, super helpful. If people want to kind of engage and go a little deeper with you, uh, what's the best way for them to kind of connect and, and contact you? Yeah, well, the best way is probably just to go to the blog to missionalchurchnetwork.com. Okay. I mean, my contact information is there. And then you know, a lot of things we just talked about today, you know, there's a blog post probably you might find there. And, uh, and then also on the sidebar, I think we mentioned earlier, there's a, a couple of links where you can go and download those two free eBooks, the Rethink eBook and the Kobo Church Planning eBook. Oh, that's fantastic. And Rethink was actually my favorite book two years ago. It was oh. so, <laughs> it was just, it's, it's the book that we spend so much energy, like the thoughts in that thing, we spend so much time talking about, and you were just smart enough to write them all down. <laughs> so well, and it, my, I hope in the next couple of months, I want to revise it and update it a little bit because there's a, there's a little more I want to say on a couple of those topics. And then uh, I hope we can actually put it in print too, because that we, isn't available in print. It's just yeah. the ebook download. But I wanted to make it free just, you know, because it's really about the dissemination of those ideas. And, uh, but, I, but I, I do know some people like to hold a book in their hand. So I'm hoping that here in the next few months, we'll make that available as a printed version as well. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Uh, well, Brad, uh, every uh, this season, we've ended every interview with what we're calling five quick questions. And so I'm just going to inundate you with a handful of questions. And um, yeah, so, you know, don't, you don't have to think too, too hard about it. Just, you know, your gut response. Um, but question one, uh, what have you been reading? Yeah, well, I read a lot. Uh, I mean, I try to read a lot. I, uh, I had a goal this year in 2021. I want to try to read one book a week. Wow. And I tell you, the last two, and so far, I would say this year, a couple of my favorite books, uh, one I just finished um, a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, on the blog, I, I went ahead and created a PDF of all of my highlights from the book. But it, the book is called You're Not Listening. And it's just about how we can become better listeners. And um, so yeah, so that that's that's the latest one that I finished that I just thoroughly enjoyed. Um, 
So yeah, you're not listening. Can't remember the la the name of the author. Her last name is Murphy, but I can't remember her first name. Okay, perfect, awesome. Uh, what are you watching? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, well, right now I'm I'm watching now that I live in the Tampa St. Pete area. I'm watching the Stanley Cup Finals because the 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 Lightning are in it. Nice. They, game two's tonight, and um, yeah, it, I I've become a, a huge hockey fan, which. When I lived in Kansas City, I, if you told me I was going to be a hockey fan, I would have called you crazy. But so, do you understand how hockey works? Well, I do now. I didn't. I actually had to go online and learn, you know, <laughs> all the different rules. And but it is just—it's funny. All my like northern friends and especially Canadian friends, they would tell me, "Man, you just don't get it. You don't get how great hockey is." And I'm like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But man, you just have to go to a hockey game, and uh, yeah, and I, I was instantly hooked. So. Yeah, we, I've gone to some like minor league hockey games of just like old broken athletes are the young ones that are untamable. And those are fun to watch, but I still have no idea. What's Harry, happening. sometime you make a trip to Tampa, we'll go, we'll go see the lightning and you will be hooked. I'm telling you. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know the Stanley cup final was happening right now. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because you're in Austin. Yes, so. that's right. Um, uh, question three, what's the funniest uh thing that's happened during quarantine or just something that was pretty cool yeah well i would say pretty cool it's kind of crazy we've actually discovered in the midst of covid we we have just cultivated such just beautiful relationships with our neighbors i mean yeah. you know a, a whole bunch of our neighbors because we're about 45 minutes from downtown tampa and several of our neighbors work in downtown tampa and during covid they didn't they didn't drive into the city they were home all the time and it just created really, I, I've, I've told so many people this, but we, we've been here for two years, actually this week, we moved here two years ago and we've never lived anywhere that we've had so much relational favor. Wow. And it's just, I absolutely love our neighborhood. I love our neighbors and it's crazy, but part of it was COVID is that everyone just kind of came together over the last year. Um, and really we just kind of relied on each other. Like, I don't think we would have if we, if everyone was still kind of like disconnected in all yeah. these other parts of the city. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that echo actually echoes a little bit of my favorite thing is just the relationships I've been able to go deeper in in the yeah. last year. It's just been amazing. That's Absolutely. so cool. Uh, question four, what, what is bringing you life right now? What, what brings you uh, an immense amount of joy? Well, I, I got to go back to the whole neighbor thing. I mean, I really, it's just been, it's just been a, an, a, an enormous blessing to get to know and the reality is not, we don't have, I mean, I, I could list, and I actually did, I cr started creating a list of all the names of the neighbors of people that we've met. And, you know, the list is over 50 now, and there's not one single believer on the list, hmm. but they, we've just grown to love each other. I, I mean, I tell you, we have a neighbor that she was getting ready to, to go back to her home city for two months. And the day before she left, she told us goodbye and she started crying. I mean, she's, she's going to be gone for two months. And she just yeah. said, you know, how, I'm going to miss you guys. And it was a little embarrassing on my part, I think. But, um, but yeah, so it's just been just getting to know our neighbors on a deeper level has, has been, uh, it's just been a joy. That's cool. Uh, and our final question we've been asking everyone is what is your favorite thing about home? So I know you live in really kind of the St. Pete's uh, area. What, what's your favorite thing about that area? Uh, the water. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we're, we're fortunate that we've got a big kind of body of water out our back door. It's called the Boca Ciega Bay. And, uh, I can just sit and, you know, I'm old, but I can just sit and, and yeah. just, and just watch the water and, and, and all the creatures that are, that swim by. So 
yeah, I really, I've, I've grown to just uh, really love and appreciate water. Yeah, I was actually thinking about you the other day uh, because uh, you know I'm, it, everyone listening knows I've been on a weight loss journey for for seems like forever now, and I was thinking the different ways. And one, I'm fascinated with your diet. You're you're essentially pescatarian. You you eat fish and a lot of vegetables. And I was just thinking, it's like, how does a dude who lives in Kansas City just eat that much fish? Like, yeah. like it, 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 I mean, I know we have trucks and we have infrastructures that you can get decent seafood pretty much anywhere in the United States. But I, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, you must be like in hog heaven, like right yeah. there on the bay and just eating all the fish you want. Well, and you know, Terry, yeah, it's crazy, but it's been 42 years since I've eaten any red meat, any beef yeah. or pork. And there's a there's this long, crazy, silly story of why that is. It's not a big deal, but it's funny in Kansas city. It's like every time someone would come to Kansas city, the very first thing is, Hey, what's your favorite barbecue? And I would just always say, well, I'm not a huge barbecue fan. I wouldn't tell them. I said, I'm not a huge barbecue fan, but my friends say, you know, (laughs) it's this place or this place, but yeah, here, no one talks barbecue. (laughs) It's all about seafood and fish. And so, yeah, I feel at home here. Yeah. My daughter would love that place for (laughs) sure. Yeah. Well, Brad, thanks so much. Uh, Man, we really appreciate the time and the investment. And I know uh, just the Forge Tribe thinks the world of you. And and we're just, we're excited uh, for what what God has down the road. And uh, I'm excited about the the Rethink Tweaks. That'll, you know, maybe maybe you use that as the subtitle, the tweaks. I'm I'm looking forward to trying to update that a bit. Yep. And I always, always enjoy conversations with the two of you. So I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, You can contact us at ForgeAmerica.com or on our social media uh, uh, pages. And so thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.